Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Thanks for checking out this feed of my favorite interviews and best guests over the last seven years. Whether it's your first time or you're already in a deep dive, make sure you head to billsimmonsinterviews.theringer.com for the entire archive. You can sort by genre, year, and more to easily navigate all your favorite people. Again, that is billsimmonsinterviews.theringer.com. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions all apply. See website for details. John C. Riley is here. What an honor. You were always on the list. You don't do really? that much. Yeah, you don't do that much. Wow. I, was, I think it's always funny when people say like, we wanted you for our movie, but we, we, you we didn't went with a John calls. C. Riley type instead. I'm like, wait, I was available. <laughs> We've come a long time ago. But I remember. Oh, thanks for having me, Bill. Oh, this is, I've been dying to do this with you. I remember at Grantland, we did a Boogie Nights oral history and we tried to get a hold of you. And, and it was like, yeah, he doesn't really keep it unless he's, yeah, I read that. Keeps low profile. I read it. It was good. It was. Yeah. It was fun. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like it's, it is just best to let the work speak for itself. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. Especially Paul's movies. He and I had such an intense, we still do, we're very close friends, but making those movies was such an intense personal, uh, almost like a family effort, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so to talk about it after the fact, outside of it, I don't know. Every once in a while, I'll tell stories or something from from my experiences on those movies, but. Well, now, you know. now that all these years have passed, it must be like uh, almost nostalgic. I mean, see, Boogie Nights was now 22 years ago. Hard know, Eight, Hard eight was 24 years ago. I must ago. be old. <laughs> I haven't counted lately, but, uh, you know, the funny thing about Boogie Nights, actually, is th- it, that movie seemed like uh, nostalgic when it came out. Yeah. You know, because the way Paul shot it, it had this 70s look to the film and stuff. It seemed like an old movie already when it when it was a new movie. When you did Hard Eight with him, and that, that was... He talked about it when he was on here about, you know, you this dream to make your own movie and then the studio's messing with it and doing all these things. But could you see the talent with him right away? Oh, yeah. I can see the talent just from reading that script. Yeah. I mean, it was really apparent. I was like, I, I remember sitting down to meet with him because he actually asked me to go to the Sundance Filmmakers Workshop with him, uh, which is this thing they do in, at Sundance where in the summertime where they give up-and-coming filmmakers a chance to work on a few scenes on video with professional people and sort of get their feet wet with the filmmaking process. Um, 
So I remember meeting with him when I was considering to do that. My first reaction was like, I'm not going to filmmaker boot camp. Like, I already make movies. Like, I worked yeah. really hard to be able to make movies. Like, I don't need to go to summer camp for filmmakers, which was a really stupid attitude to take. Um, and then I read Paul's script, and I was like, oh, my God. Like, the guy's a total natural. Like, yeah. And I sat down with him in Studio City when we first met, and I was like, you don't have an agent? He's like, no, <laughs> no. I was like, man, wait till you get ready. Yeah, way through people start you know checking out your work, and that was before we shot anything. It was just what he'd written, but he's. It was really clear from the very first time I met Paul, and the very first time we worked together that he was a total natural. He already had everything operating, you know, all the different aspects of filmmaking. And uh, I don't know if he told you about this, but he he wrote this. He had an assignment when he was a little kid. I think he was eight years old. Yeah. And the assignment was go home and write uh, write what job you want when you grow up and why you should be hired for that job. <laughs> and he wrote in amazing handwriting for an eight-year-old, actually. It's like cursive writing. It says, my name is Paul Thomas Anderson. I want to be a writer, a director, and a special effects man. Hire me. I'm the man for the job. <laughs> when he's eight. I mean, I didn't, I, I was still like wondering what I was going to do for a living when I was finishing college. But yeah. Yeah. So Paul's a real natural for sure. That's, I mean, that's one of those cases where that, that cliched term, a natural, really, really applies. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? Chicago. I'm from the south side of Chicago. And then where'd you go? You went to DePaul, right? Yeah, I went to the DePaul. Right after basketball kind of turned for them? You weren't there for <laughs> exactly. you there for Ray the Meyer, right? No, I think I think Ray Meyer Jr. might have been there. Or the when Joey I was Meyer. There. Yeah. Or, oh, sorry, Joey Meyer. Yeah. Uh yeah, but that was a whole other world to me. That whole DePaul actually I went to a thing called the Goodman School of Drama, which was like a they later changed it the name to the theater school at DePaul University when the Goodman family decided they didn't want their name associated with a Catholic university. Because <laughs> it used to be at the Art Institute, the Goodman School. But anyway. Uh, yeah, so I went to this sort of conservatory program that was similar to um, like a Juilliard or one of those real professional training programs for actors. And uh, and we were our own little campus within DePaul. Yeah. So we would go and take academic classes and stuff there in order to get our degrees. But I was as... <laughs> I was as far from DePaul basketball as you could be while attending DePaul University. <laughs> you were wearing the Mark Aguirre jersey around uh, classes? I just, I wasn't really interested in sports at all when I was a kid. I just, I wrestled when I was young. And occasionally, like if a Chicago team was doing well, I would like pay attention. But when I was in college, I was like all acting all the time. I was studying theater history and I was just really immersed in the, and trying to be an actor, you know. Did you want to be like a theater actor or a movie actor? That was my plan. That's what I thought because I didn't have any reference points in my life for any. Like, I remember being a kid and going to see movies and just thinking like, wow, Gene Hackman is is Popeye Doyle, you know. Like, yeah, you just, I would watch them. And I didn't even, I didn't know any actors. I didn't know any actors, let alone theater actors or let alone movie actors. So when I would watch movies, I'd be like, Wow, I just completely buy the illusion. I didn't understand how it was all done and how it was made and that these people were pretending. I just kind of went there. And then I kept doing theater. I did a lot of musicals when I was a kid. 
and um, and then all through high school did community theater and that kind of thing. And then when I when I went to college, I was like ready to try to be a serious actor, a dramatic actor, you know, like try to learn some of the stuff that, you know, because where I grew up on the South Side was all musicals and that kind of thing. It was yeah. no one was doing Shakespeare or Ibsen or, you know, or whatever, even any kind of dramatic plays. It was all sort of feel good sort of stuff. Were you doing great, improv but, there too? Because Chicago is such a big improv yeah, city. Yeah, that's exactly, that's my first acting class at the at the Goodman was, um, or at DePaul was, um, was an improv class. And it was really when I really came to life and I realized like, oh, like it can be this. Like, and it's funny because my first, the first acting class I ever went to when I was eight years old at the park near my house, Marquette Park, where I grew up, um, was improv based too. Yeah. The teacher was just having us do all these theater games. And then we took all these kind of improvised sketches that we'd done and turned them into a show called Comedy Tonight. <laughs> and so he did like sang songs from other musicals and like did these sketches. So it's funny that like these linchpin moments for me as an actor were were through improvisation, which was which is another way of saying like feeling empowered enough as an actor to feel like you have a voice and what you have to contribute is just as valuable as a script or whatever, you know? Yeah. That's a big leap to make in in your mind. And some of my best work has come with people that believed in me in that way. I remember Lassa Hallstrom was one of the first people. Uh, Brian De Palma, my first movie, he used to let me improvise all the time. Um, oh, yeah, Casualty of War. Yeah, Casualty of War. War. He would let me kind of like add this or that, you know, like not wholesale improvisation like I was doing later. But Lassa Hallstrom, when I did What's Eating Gilbert Grape, he just let me go off. He would just, <laughs> It was so freeing. And then by the time I met Paul Anderson, um, uh, you know, I was, I realized like, this is a great way to work. That said, I still like, I really like it when a script is really well written and a director insists on the script being the script. Um, well, when it, the script is not well written and people insist they do the script, that's kind of a nightmare. <laughs> uh, but most smart people, when something's coming out clunky, or it's hard to memorize. That's that's always like a, a little like canary in the coal mine thing with with dialogue. If you can't memorize it for some reason, it means that it's not written right. It's well, not written in a in a rhythm that's natural to human thought and speech. You know? But what's so I get all that. But what's weird is that you can also dive into this McKay Farrell world. Yeah, well, McKay is just thing. like riff 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 go go go, which is complete opposite from. Sticking to a script. Oh, right. Yeah. The opposite of that. Yeah. Because uh, there's not that many people who can do both at the highest level. Name you know? one besides well, me. So Catherine Hahn. She exactly. was on here. Yeah. Okay. She. I'll, we, I'll she's a friend of the pod, that. but she's another one. She can do, she, she has this in, whole path and oh she can God. do the improv. I'll never and the forget when she came in to audition for Step Brothers. And I, they asked me to come and, you know, because I had to be so intimate with her. I have these yeah. crazy sexual <laughs> scenarios with her and stuff. Uh, they asked me to come in, just make sure that, you know, the chemistry was good and stuff. And I would just remember, like, my hair bits being blown back. Yeah. I was like, I hadn't, hadn't met a woman other than Molly Shannon up to that point who could do what Will and I were doing, you know, who were, who was willing to be as chaotic right. and just jump in both feet and just, who cares? It doesn't matter what, you know, like 
it doesn't matter what was planned. We'll just find something, you know? And she was just dazzling. Catherine was dazzling that first audition. I was like, holy crap. (laughs) And then she just, her ferocity, you can see it in the movie. She's so intense. Like she would attack these ideas and, oh my God, it's, it's pretty hard to shock me with like, with that kind of stuff. (laughs) And she blew me away, man. I mean, she makes my performance in a lot of ways in the movie that that she's so intense. It g- gave me something to play off of. You right. Know? So I just saw her. She was in this Netflix movie about this couple trying to get pregnant with Paul Giamatti. Mm-hmm. Just a dramatic movie. And it's like she's doing the dramatic route. And then like you stepbrothers will come on two hours later and she's. <laughs> Uh, a maniac, but I was, I've always been impressed when people were able to do that. Did, what's more fun for you? Because it seems like you love theater too. Oh, what's more fun be- be- between It's like, what's your favorite theater? thing to do? Because you, well, you have like these three paths that you can kind of veer down at any time. Wait, what, what are the three? Well, you have theater. Film, comedy. You uh, have comedy, and then you have like these serious dramatic movies. Oh, right. Well, it's all the same to me. I mean, I'm just trying to be as honest I can as I can be from moment to moment and really plug in and believe the circumstances that the character is in and really make it feel personal and real. So it's all character driven. Pretty much. Or it's like, it's basically the same thing I was doing when I was eight years old in that improv class. Like you just suspend your disbelief and you, and then if the circumstances you're in are ridiculous, then you're in a comedy. And if they're not ridiculous, then you're in a more dramatic thing. But in terms of what I'm doing to get myself to, feel like I believe what's going on it's really similar to like I remember like (laughs) in that first acting class there's this amazing guy named Jim Morley who was my very first uh theater kind of teacher or whatever when I was a kid and he's like okay everyone lay down on the floor now we're all gonna be pieces of bacon okay everyone's (laughs) on the floor you're just an uncooked piece of bacon okay Now you're in the pan. I'm turning up the heat. What happens to bacon when it, the pan gets hot? And all of a sudden we start like <laughs> bubbling around like piece, pieces of bacon. And I remember like it was literally the first thing we did in that class. And I remember going, my people, like I found my people like that. I looked around the room and I was like, oh, everyone's into this as much as I am. I found my people. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Because before that I was, I was kind of, I don't know. It was sort of this like Zelig character. I would kind of shift between groups from the yeah. burnouts to the jocks to the, you know, and mostly I was just really mischievous, like kind of breaking windows and whatever, drinking wine on the whale, railroad tracks at 11 years old and yeah. stuff like that. And theater and, and acting gave me like a, a way to be mischievous that was positive and productive and didn't involve getting arrested. <laughs> was there was there an energy in Chicago in the eighties because it was like the Belushi Murray like the decade before? That Belushi and Bill Murray were more like people who were more into comedy. Were really, I mean, of course, I I revered those guys as yeah. much as anybody. You know, Animal House and Meatballs and all those kind of stripes and all those amazing movies those guys did. But by the time I got into college. Like in in the eighties, like I graduated high school in eighty three. By the time I got into college, I was like, I I saw improv as a thing that was that had infinite possibilities. Yeah, it wasn't just about getting the laugh. And there was a whole kind of movement in Chicago at Second City and Improv Olympic and places like that with very talented Tina Fey, Adam McKay, Steve Carell, like you name it, Stephen Colbert, like all these people. Yeah 
And so I'm not saying I'm not saying it as a criticism, but those guys were more chasing the laugh. Their job every night was get the audience to laugh. And when I got involved in improv and acting school, it was no, just go there. Even if you end up crying or you end up in an angry thing or whatever, just improv is a improv means like really letting go, not knowing at all what's going to happen next. So um, the people I was revering at that time were like John Malkovich, Gary Sinise, oh, yeah. and all the Steppenwolf guys, Billy Peterson, who was at the Remains Theater at the time. Like those were the titans in my world. Like I remember Malkovich just like being so inspiring. <laughs> he did this production of Curse of the Starving Class, the Sam Shepard play, which I also did in college eventually, but – I remember, like, the rumor was, like, Malkovich peed on stage every night for real. Because there's this one part where the brother in that play deliberately pees on his sister's drawings to mess with her. And when I did it in in college, I had this little bladder thing inside my pants so I could fake it. And we were just like, Malkovich did it for real. Malkovich peed on cue in front of an audience every night. Like, it's amazing. Like, so that was, like, my Laurence Olivier. So your first movie, it's Brian De Palma, it's Sean Penn, and it's Michael J. Fox. Mm-hmm. Like, those were three titans. This is your first job. Yeah, it was the first time I'd been on an airplane. It was the first time I left the Midwest. The first time you've been on an airplane? Yeah. Really? First time I'd ever been in a movie. First time I'd ever been on an airplane. Um, I actually met my wife, who I've been married to now 26 years on that movie. Wow. <laughs> she was working for Sean Penn at the time. Um yeah, and so Sean, between Sean, Brian De Palma, and Art Linson, the producer of that movie, that those guys are really the famous, reason I'm He wrote here. a famous book, Art Linson. Yeah. He wrote a book about like his whole experience. It was one of the better Hollywood books. Yeah, um, he's an amazing guy. Um, and those guys believed in me. You know, I was originally cast as a just one day's work on that movie, and then someone got fired, and they moved me up to a cameo part, which was like a whole big, nice scene. And then someone else got fired, <laughs> and I got moved into the one of the leads of the movie because I had been so committed in rehearsal. You know, like a lot of the guys in that movie were trying to like, out macho each other and yeah, and trying to out Sean Penn, Sean Penn. You know, and I was like, "You're out of your minds! Like this guy's a brilliant actor. Why would you want to be more? What aren't we? Aren't we like playing make believe here? Why are you guys trying to out drink? You know, and out." Out macho Sean Yeah, Penn. like, it's just stupid. Like, let's just... So a couple of those people got fired. And, um, and yeah, and, and based on my commitment and really my theater background, because when we were doing these rehearsals in the room for that movie, on, when we first got together in these conference rooms in Thailand, I was just like, yeah, well, you know, I got this tiny little part, but if you need me to do anything else, they're like, yeah, yeah, here, there's this old Vietnamese man who... Uh, we don't have an old Vietnamese man here today. So, John, here you just read this part. And I would just fully commit to it as if that was my part, you know? Yeah. Like, And I guess it was pretty funny. The commitment of it was pretty funny. But then I really, it really, uh, I don't know, I've never really talked to Sean directly about it because I was always kind of really grateful that Sean gave me that leg up. And he vouched for me, you know? When, yeah. when Brian made the decision to... And we need someone for this part. Now we fired this other guy. Who are we going to put? Should we cast John Riley? Sean said, yeah, he can do it. You know, he didn't insist that I get the part, but he made it possible for me to get the opportunity. And then I did my second and third movies with Sean also. 
So I was. Which always, ones were those? I can't remember. Uh, we're No Angels and um, State of Grace. Oh yeah. And so those movies, uh, I also had to audition for and get. And I, I was just, I don't know. I'm a proud guy from Chicago, and part of me was like, I don't want anyone to think that Sean Penn just gave me this as a favor or he yeah. got me in and made people, I want to be there on my own merits, you know? So I was always really careful, like to keep my relationship with Sean, just professional, you know? And and I realized with Sean, like you're either, <laughs> I was either going to be his peer, you know, and we were working with people like Robert De Niro and, <laughs> you know, like, so I realized, okay, I'm not going to be his peer. I'm not, I'm not Robert De Niro. Like, but I also didn't want to be like his bitch. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to be like his boy. His lackey that he brought yeah, So movie. I just sort of kept my distance and did my thing and stuck to my guns and did what I knew how to do as an actor and tried to, you know, I, it was important to me to feel like I earned my spot, that it wasn't given to me. But that said, I'm so, I'm just, I wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for Sean. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. He taught me so much about acting in those first three movies, and acting in movies in particular. You know? Was he one of the like in Casualties of War? Was he like in character even when you guys weren't filming? Is yeah. he one of those actors? Yeah, he lived in another hotel from everybody. You know, he took this sergeant role, which is a leadership role. You're not meant to socialize with the men. You know, there's all these military dictates about the way you're supposed to behave if you're a sergeant and he he definitely acted well, kinda, like he that. changed his face and his voice like he he definitely tried to transform himself a yeah bit. he does that almost every movie i think but um yeah i remember we we're doing this scene where we were demanding to leave the base because we wanted to go to the whorehouse it's kind of the 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 engine that creates that whole story and we're doing this scene where we're the guard stops and says no you guys can't go to town we have an agreement with the VC. They get the whorehouse tonight. Yeah. You guys can't. And we only have one day of leave and we flip out. And we're screaming at the guard and whatever. And so we're doing the master shot of that scene. And I'm just going for it like, like full on energy, like full commitment. That's how, that's all I know how to do. And Sean, after a couple of takes, he's like, he just leans over. He's like, yeah, you ought to save a little bit for the close up. Just remember, like, this is just the master. And I was like, what? <laughs> What? You're telling me not to go full out? And I was like, oh, oh. And then I realized, oh, yeah, no, we got like eight more setups of this scene. Yeah. And if I just scream my head off and expend all my energy on this giant wide shot, then when it comes time to actually do the coverage, I'm not, I'm going to be either hoarse or I'm just not going to have that same inspiration as I had. It's like an athlete. Like you don't want to burn out in the first five minutes of the game. There's another Sean Penn trick that he taught me. He was like, if you are on a, I just, he didn't tell me this. I just know it from watching him work. We're doing scenes in State of Grace, and he's on the telephone, and there was this whole thing like, hold on, we're not ready to shoot at the telephone booth yet because Sean's character is calling somebody and is having this phone call, and we're not ready to shoot. We have to get the other line set up. Like, what, what do you mean, other line? What are you talking about? Like, Sean, his uh, assistant is going to be on the phone so that when he calls from that payphone, there's someone on the phone. It's not the other actor who's in the scene with Sean, but it's going to be someone else on the other. And it's the greatest acting trick ever. Because if you can see it now, if, next time you watch a movie, look, when someone's on the telephone, you'll know immediately whether there's someone on the other end of the line or whether they're faking it. Even the greatest actors, it's very, very hard. Because there's all this unconscious behavior that happens when you're on the phone that you're not doing intentionally, you know? Yeah. You're listening and you're trying, and this information is coming in your ear and going in your brain. So, and it's very, very hard to fake. 
And so Sean just showed me, like, just have someone on the other end. It's a little bit of a pain in the ass for production. Like, it takes a little bit more time to set that up, but it pays dividends like yeah. you wouldn't believe. Yeah. Then you have Johnny Depp and Leo. Yeah. Leo was 17 years old when we did What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Yeah. He turned 18 on that movie. He's amazing in that movie. That yeah, movie is really good. Oscar but he's thought like, so. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it was one of those movies between that and This Boy's Life. You just go, all right, Leo's going to be in yeah. my life now for you know, 40 years. All, uh, he's the only person, and he did it when he was 17 years old, the only person who's ever, in my opinion, done a successful impression of me. Really? Yes. And he just did it on the fly, right to my face. Around the set of Gilbert Grape, I was like, you little shit. Like, it was incredible. I mean, Leo is really, I don't even think people have seen half the stuff he can do. He's got amazing moves. He's an amazing mimic for human behavior. And anyway, I thought he was so good in The Revenant. Do you see that? Oh, my God. Just killed it in that movie. Well, when when, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson was here, we were talking about the fork in the road where he was almost the Boogie Nights the Mark Wahlberg party yeah, turned it down. Leo down was like, listen, man, I know they're telling you to do this Titanic movie, <laughs> but that movie is about a boat that sinks yeah. and everyone knows the boat sinks. Yeah. But where's the drama? No one's going to give a shit about the people on that boat. Okay. It's about the boat. It's a famous boat story. Okay. <laughs> Come and do Boogie Nights with us. He's like, ah, I don't know. I guess so. I'm not sure. And then... <laughs> Whatever, he, we, 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 we all made the choices we made, and I don't think Leo has any regret. It's definitely that movie. He actually, ironically enough, he said he did regret it. Oh, well, there you go. He said like a year ago. For him. No, he said like <laughs> a year ago it was, it was the, his one regret with the decision. Now, Well, I, I think, tried to warn him. <laughs> you tried to tell him. I think no, he has conflicted movie, thoughts listen, about Titanic, Titanic did though. did great things for him and allowed him to do all kinds of stuff. You know, Boogie Nights... It could have done the same great things for him, but maybe not. You know, like See, definitely I, a lot more people saw Titanic than Boogie Nights. Oh, hell yeah. I think he was kind of paralyzed by Titanic a little bit. I think that's why he was looking back like, ah, eh, maybe that's not a great thing. Because that movie was so big. Yeah. It's almost like he became too famous from it and he had to kind of scale it back because he was like you. He cared about doing the work, you know? And it was like when you become that famous, it's really hard to operate in the world. Well. The next time I, I give him advice, I hope him. he listens to me. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, it would have been really interesting. Him as, I was totally wrong about Titanic, by the way. <laughs> I, I was totally going to say, wrong. yeah. People were definitely interested in what happens in that movie, and it wasn't about the boat. Yeah, but even when they were making the movie, people were saying that it wasn't going to do well. Oh, my God, this is going to be one of the biggest bombs ever. Why are they doing this? It's so know. expensive. Nobody knows. Yeah. Nobody ever knows. Oh, well. Yeah, uh, and then you got to work with Mark Wahlberg, who also became giant, a giant famous actor. I know. What's what's the pro- what's my problem? You, I, <laughs> I, keep I would say you get credit giant out of famous this. actors <laughs> by the people I work with. It seems uh, like you're catching. You caught a lot of people at the right times. Now, like somebody like yeah. Costner was already super famous when you worked with him, but especially the first part of your career, you you were hitting all these people at good points of their career, which is nice. Yeah. Boogie Nights. Um, when did you know that was going to, I mean, obviously the script was amazing, super ambitious. There's a million characters. They're shooting it in like 60 days. Was there any point in that where you're going, I don't know, this might, this might've been too ambitious. No. By the time we did Boogie Nights, I was so deep in Paul's camp. 
you know, he and I were like thick as thieves by that point. I was as true a believer. You know the way Reed Rothschild is yeah. with, with Dirk Diggler in that movie? That's the way I was with Paul. <laughs> I would do anything for Paul. I yeah. still would. I still would do anything for Paul because I, I believed and do believe in him so much. Like that was someone I could really be loyal to because I, he was just a genius. And I knew what we were doing was very difficult. And we had, look, we had a whole, almost a year of people saying, no, 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 no. No one wanted to touch this whole porn idea. Oh, porn stars are, you know, that's dirty and blah, blah, blah. Now the whole world has turned into porn. <laughs> right. <laughs> but back then, believe it or not, it was really hard to get someone to play that part because most people in Hollywood, the agents and those types were, and I think including Mark's agent or manager or somebody was like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't do this. And then Paul and I had to kind of convince him. We brought him in, me and Phil Hoffman and Mark all improvising together and stuff. And it was clear it was going to be a lot of fun. But I knew, like, that movie was so much fun and was felt so subversive and so crazy that I knew, like, we got something good here. Yeah. We, that we better finish this before they realize what they paid for. <laughs> because this is, like... And, and all, all my best work has always felt like that. Like, hurry up and finish before they realize what they allowed us to do, you know? Yeah. And Boogie Nights was definitely that. And then it was a struggle when it first came out to, to get, you know, and Mark wasn't such a huge star then. And, you know, it was. It was Burt Reynolds was kind of distanced himself from it initially. And then I think he realized it was. Yeah. And then everyone told him how great he was in it. <laughs> <laughs> when Paul was on here, he was talking about, the fight that uh, that the the scene when when Dirk Diggler and um, Jack Horner, the Burt Reynolds character, when they have the fight in the pool, mm-hmm. it's like I'm the biggest star here. I'll t-. And yeah. he was saying how some some off the set stuff spilled into that scene because there was like some macho stuff going on with Burt and Mark, yeah. and, and it was like the, one of the only times in his career the stuff that was happening off the set kind of ended up in the movie in a good way, mm-hmm. but. Um, I don't know. It seemed like Burt Reynolds was an interesting point of his career. Yeah, you know, God rest his soul, man. That guy. What a run. It yeah, was, it was great run. reading all the and if you look at how, stories how long him. handsome guys last in Hollywood now, like how many years do you really get as being like the sexiest man alive or whatever? It's they like call eight it. to ten. Yeah, and Burt was like on top for like 25 years or something. He was the and, biggest star when I was a kid. Not all of it was great art, you know, like yeah. it was Smoking the Band and these kind of like popular popcorn movies, but he was the women, he was the guy women wanted to sleep with for a long yeah. time. And with that, you know, when people tell you you're that, you, of course, you, you come to believe it because yeah. everyone tells you that. You're a god. You're, you know, you're macho. You're sexy. You're, you're the top of the heap. You know, like when you have twenty a twenty five year run like that. I don't know if it's actually twenty five years, but it was it was longer than most. It was like it was like fifteen solid. So yeah, you. I, I would imagine it's pretty difficult to age when you've been living that kind of life. Where me, I look like a fifty year old guy when I was eighteen years old. <laughs> so now I'm just kind of becoming the person I was always meant to be. Uh, it was weird. Like I was just like an odd looking younger man. Now I'm a, now I'm someone who looks my age. So it's a <laughs> little easier transition Gene, for me. Gene Hackman they always said that about him too. What, said what about him? Just that he always it was like what, what did young old? what did young Gene Hackman look like? Mm. Yeah, you're right. He's always had that <laughs> French connection. Gene Hackman, yeah, he's just always had that same kind of face. I think he 
he started a little late too. He did. I think Gene was older than some of his contemporaries when he started getting big work. Man, remember him in the conversation and he's so many great movies. He had he had like a run and then he had another run and then there was like a nineties run and you yeah. know, he always now it's I actually kind of miss Gene. I don't feel like we filled the Gene Hackman void. There was like a specific type of part that he was always the best at, and I don't know who that is. I don't though. think that role is there anymore, honestly. Maybe it's not. Like the enemy of the I, state with Will Smith. Like that role he played in that, I don't know who's that person now. I just I don't know who the man's man is now. Well, where is that role of that you know, like an older guy with gravitas who's like you know, I'm not trying to be young and cute and hip. I'm just I'm a grown-ass man right. who has ideas and who stands for ethical things and whatever. You know, like like the way my dad was. My dad didn't want to dress like me. My dad was not interested in the music. I was, you know, like, I have children now. I'm really curious. What do you listen to? Because there's this sort of pressure to look like a younger person than you are, to be hip with music that's younger than you, to know what's, you know, otherwise you're a square or you're, you know, you're, God forbid, you're old, you know? My dad's generation is like, I don't give a shit what you listen to. I'm a grown-ass man. I wear a suit because I have a, I have achieved this point in my life. Yeah. I worked hard to get here. I'm not trying to be a boy, you know? That's a, there's been a real shift in our mentality that way for men and women. We worship this idea. Everyone wants to be 24 or something or even younger, but uh, this idea that, you know, it, like maturity is something to be avoided or there's no way to age gracefully, like get surgery, you know, get hair implants, whatever it is, do whatever you can to fight the tide, but... That was another generation of guys like Robert Duvall, Gene Hackman, uh, you know. Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee Jones. One take Tommy. All those guys. Like, I don't know. It's interesting. Like, there aren't that many roles like that left. I mean, if you look at the amount of business that's done in this town that's cartoons and superheroes, that's about 70% of the business. Maybe 60%. I don't know what the exact number is, but... There's no roles for a Robert Duvall or Robert De Niro or Gene Hackman in a superhero. Although, as as I'm saying that, I realized Gene Hackman played one of the great uh, villains. He played Superman, yeah. Yeah, he was Lex Lex Luthor, Luthor, like the greatest Lex Luthor. With so much humor, though, you know? Like, now the villains in those movies are so, like, serious and overly dramatic. Trying to steal the movie. Nothing can be funny. Yeah. Gene Hackman was like this wonderfully chaotic and he was scarier for that reason because he seemed like he was having a great time destroying the world. Anyway, so yeah, the point I'm making is like an old man's point. I sound like an old fart, like back in my day. These movies, these (laughs) days, they don't care about quality. Well, it's true. We had Matt Damon, he was talking about how hard it was to make Manchester by the Sea. Yeah, and how beautiful movie. How worried he is about the the movie that cost fifteen to seventy million, and that was what was so interesting about A Star Is Born, which I saw this weekend. I thought it was really good, and it was you know it's a remake, but it's still not a superhero movie. It's sold yeah. on on look, kind anything, of the merits of their stars. Yeah, look, I say all all power to him, even if it's a remake. When you're making, we need stories that like tell. The human story, like we need, that's what cinema or movies are supposed to do. Yes, of course, there's a, they're supposed to sell popcorn and, and make you forget about your life. Yeah, sure. There's always a place for those kind of movies. But there should always also be a place for movies that affect you as a human being that 
that make you think about what it's like to be a human being and and grow and you know interesting ideas and stuff that's that's can be hard to watch you know things that are like Manchester by the Sea is a perfect example you know like this poor guy's you know kid dies and it's uh it's gut wrenching. It's not something that you go running towards like you'd run towards a superhero movie, but it's vitally important yeah. for for the art form of movies that we that we can experience these things. Well, I'm hoping Netflix and Amazon, because even that movie I mentioned before with Catherine Hahn and Paul Giamatti, the fertility movie, that's a movie that just could not have been made anymore because nobody would have paid for it. But now Netflix seems to be spending money on Well, it's funny. I have a little bit of a I don't know. Netflix and those larger streaming companies, it seems like, I mean, it's starting to become, uh, at first it was like, well, you could go to the movies or you could stay home and, you know, watch some of these like second run movies. Now these streaming services are becoming such, they want to be the front of it. Yeah. They want to be the the movie you're watching that weekend on opening weekend. And they want to destroy the distribution business. They want to, reset the clock with they want to like eliminate theaters basically that's netflix i I don't know i can't speak for them but it seems like that's their mo destroy like have people not go to the movies at all have them watch it all in their house i don't think theaters can be destroyed you saw it this weekend so either but stars born in la like you couldn't get a ticket for it you had to reserve it I know hey, I've got a movie open right now. By the way, I'm well aware of how much money Stars <laughs> Born is making. Uh, no, but so the point I'm making is, like, it's, it's. I don't think Netflix believes that theatrical releases will go away. I think they want to do what Amazon did to bookshops. Yeah, they they want to sell movies at a loss, so that the streaming services become the way you see movies, and they want to destroy those. You know those uh you know the theater chains right and then once they're destroyed go in and buy them and now netflix will own all the theaters because it is true i think at least i really i pray this is true that human beings crave that communal experience of being together in the dark and experiencing you know that's why theater never died that you know like there's something to be said for us getting together it's like it's just like church you know you get together and you we want to feel we want to have a common experience because that Sports is like that too. I think that's the biggest reason. So uh, I just think we're in a bit of a reorganization of of the world in a lot of different ways. But well, I don't want the fifteen million dollar movie to go away. So as long 15, as fifteen, that sounds like a lot of money or me. whatever. <laughs> the five to fifteen, yeah. The you yeah, know the, people these days, you know, the studio guys, they don't want to spend fifteen. They want to spend a hundred so they can make four hundred. Yes. Know, like, but yeah, they anyway. think like big businessmen. The uh, when you did. Um, this After is not book- my area of expertise, by the way. Yeah, but this is, you care about art and this is yeah. important because it's going to determine where we go. After Boogie Nights came out, did your life change at all or is it the same? Just going on to the next worlds? You know, every, almost every movie, including the first one I did, Casualties of War, people would say like, well, get ready. Your life's going to change now, man. Oh, wait till people <laughs> see this. <laughs> including the movies I have out right now. You know, I got Sisters, Brothers, Stan and Ollie, Record Ralph 2, and Holmes and Watson. Like, each time people are like, get ready. And when this is, you know. But I know now after 75 movies or something that I'm still going to be me. You know, I'm still going to have to hustle for work. I'm going to have to find the interesting work and 
this is a fickle world movies, you know, like even no, you can't believe that you've attained some golden ring because as soon as you do, like the audience will remind you, Oh, by the way, we, we have right. short term memories for this kind of thing. You've made all these movies that are part of people's life. You know, like Step Brothers only been on 10 years. And I feel like that's become, and it was funny because, and this is one of the reasons we did the oral history about it on The Ringer. Um, you know, it did well when it came out, but then it just kind of gained steam. And I think the cable, the rewatchability, all that stuff just kind of shoves it to another level. And people feel like you're in their life. Yeah. Well, I'm proud of that movie. I'm really proud of that one. High degree of difficulty. Yeah. You basically didn't really have a story and just tried to figure it out other than the oh, basic we had, no, premise. we had a story. We had a good story. No, but you story. had to add lib a bunch of We had a pretty good the... script, too. I mean, that's the thing. We improvised a lot together beforehand when we're writing yeah, together. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. So, so we had this kind of great improv-based script already that was very inspiring for other ideas. So, we, yes, we'd improvise a ton, but we always had this great game plan to go back to. But I'm especially proud of that movie because, number one, I put a lot of myself into it, a lot of my childhood stories and a lot of things that happened to me growing up in a big family in Chicago. Yeah. Um, a lot of them. <laughs> and uh, and the other thing I'm really proud about with, this, with Step Brothers is people love it because it's really funny and it's a very broad comedy. But the reason that it's... I think the reason that it's so deep inside people now that it's so ingrained in their kind of DNA is that it seems true. This it's subversive in that way. It tells the truth about family relationships and divorce and yeah. what it feels like to have to have a stepbrother and like all that. Like all that stuff is just emotionally really true in the movie. And then we have giant gags like making people kiss white dog poop or whatever. <laughs> right. But, uh, well, you but and it's Farrow, a basis, but it's a lot of really real emotional stuff. I have a mother who died, you know, right. like, it's like, it's very real. That's, that's not like comedy stuff, you know? You and Pharaoh seemed like at that point you'd been together on a few projects and you're just humming at that point. Well, we've done Talladega Nights together. That yeah. was it. Those guys wanted me to do uh, Anchorman, but I was doing another movie at the time, so I. I kind of feel it. like you were an Anchorman, even though if you, even though you weren't, it just seems <laughs> like you should have been. I'm in the sequel. <laughs> they should have CGI'd you into it later. This to the cable. Yeah, no, that movie didn't need me. It's a brilliant, <laughs> brilliant movie. But uh, yeah, Will and I, we definitely hit our stride by the time we did Step Brothers together because we had been working together a lot building the story of that movie. Um, writing it together with Adam. and um, But I have to say, Molly Shannon introduced me to Will. And I yeah. met Molly on a movie called Never Been Kissed, which is fine. It's not, you know, it's not like... First of all, how dare you? It's not my kind of movie necessarily. I have a daughter and a wife who watches all those movies. They love that movie. Yeah. yeah. I'm not saying anything bad about the movie. It's just in terms of the kind of movies I like. Yeah. Like, and I know that I took that movie at the time because I just had a kid and I was like yeah. broke, you know, after... 30 movies or something, totally broke, <laughs> which obviously did not get very much financial planning training when I was young. But um, so I kind of took it because I was desperate. And then like Molly and I became friends on that one. And it ended up being a really exciting time working on that movie with her. And then I met Will and I remember thinking, uh, wow, like as soon as I met him, we shook hands. We were like, we're on the West side and we were going to go have breakfast with him and Molly and uh, 
And I remember looking at him like, oh, my God. Like, I did feel, like, related to him or something yeah. right away. I was like, I understand this guy. <laughs> and there's something, like, right away. Like, literally the first moment I met him. Yeah. And I didn't know a ton of his work or anything before that. I knew some stuff from Saturday Night Live or whatever. But it wasn't like I was some huge fan. Like, I, was, I knew him to be a funny guy, but I didn't know him very well. And I just remember just really clicking, like, wow. Like, and I still feel that way. Will and I are still good friends. Could you have been a cast member or is it too? Because you hosted it once. Could you, have, could you have done that? Could you have been on the Will Ferrell cast for three years? Or is that some, something know. you never would have wanted to do? It's not something I was ever interested in doing, but I don't know. I, I'm a little bit, I'm kind of like, uh, I'm not a, you have to be like a loyal, really loyal, obedient person, I think, to be to succeed on that show. Because you know, it's so structured? A, yes, because there's this whole legacy that comes before you. So it's not necessarily about you. You're filling a role within this legacy of this show. And this is how the show works. And these are the people who control it. And you do your bit. And like, and there's so much competition and all that. Like, I don't know. Like, when I did host it, I felt like, I don't know. I might not, I might not thrive in that, you know? Like, um, I always end up mouthing off or something, you know? <laughs> like, I don't know when to keep my mouth shut, you know? What was it like? Uh, you did Chicago, which mm-hmm. which was a big hit, but that was musical, and I think people like me were surprised that you were in a musical. But meanwhile, you had had this whole background with it. Yeah, I grew up <laughs> doing musicals. Yeah, so you flipped it on people. Well, they're like John C. Riley. He's in yeah. Chicago. What? I didn't know he could sing. What the hell? Yeah. I was really proud of that one because it took me a long, when I went to acting school at DePaul, you know, the, my thinking was at the time, like, well, musicals are not serious. You know, musicals are not what actors, real yeah. actors do. You know, Robert De Niro doesn't do musicals, although he did. Yeah, uh, he did. Uh, so I thought of it as this kind of silly thing. It was less than dignified for a, a, excuse me, for a serious actor. As that opportunity came to me, I realized like, oh my God, not only is this what real actors do, this is an amazing art form. This is one of the few art forms that Americans can really call their own. You know, yes, sure, it's maybe based on musical of England or whatever, but, you know, or opera or whatever you want to call it. But the musical, the, um, the contemporary musical was created in America and it's our opera. You know, we got jazz, we got baseball, and we got musicals. Yeah. You know, everything else is pretty much derived from England or Europe or... Now we have hip-hop. I would add hip-hop. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's true. I mean, in a way, hip-hop is an extension of jazz to me. True. But yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I realized when I got that opportunity with Chicago, like, wow, this is like... Not only is this what real actors do, this is like a sacred opportunity to get to like, and it felt like such a great return to my roots. And I knew exactly what to do with that character. And um, yeah, I just remember just so many emotional moments behind the scenes on that movie, just becoming overwhelmed with uh, emotion, thinking about how how amazing the, that experience was and and what a gift it was and how foolish I was in college to think like serious actors don't do musicals. 
you, stupid. <laughs> you've had well, you've headlined a bunch of movies too, because it. There was a time there when it was like, oh, he's a character actor. He'll be one of those guys who bounces around. Well, he's as, like a, the as a famous agent once said to me, as I was trying to like get to another level or get larger roles or something, or like I was asking this very powerful guy at this agency, like, oh, what do I got to do? You know, how do I get the shot to be a lead in one of these movies? Like, meanwhile, I don't look like the kind of guy that a studio is going to cast in a lead. So there's that. But this, this agent looks at me and he's like, John, you're a very expensive character actor. I was like, damn, like sometimes when you get that bracing truth from Hollywood business types, you're like, fucking hell, okay, I'm an expensive character actor. Like, well, that either means I got to lower my price or <laughs> or I have to, uh, or I got to work on getting l- larger parts because there's, there's not much future for an expensive character actor. Well, I think Philip Seymour Hoffman was like that too. He was, there was this whole new class of actors that were coming up that were being kind of, Typecast you know, as Phil, the character actors. You know, the way I was just describing, like, where are those guys, those men? Yeah. You know, like, with gravitas, who are like, I'm not a boy, I'm a man, and I have, you know, like, Phil was one of those guys to me. Phil was like like a lion, you know? Real, he had real gravitas. And you did, was Boogie Nights the first time you worked with him? No, he was in Hard Eight. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I'll never forget, the first time I heard about Phil... <laughs> Paul Anderson said to me, I met the next John C. Riley. <laughs> I was like, fuck you. How dare you? And then I met Phil. I was like, God damn it. Here we go. I'm going to be chasing this guy for the rest of my life. And uh, when you saw what he was doing with Scotty, we were like, oh man, he's really going for this. Yeah, all of it. Even in Hard Eight, you know, he just had one scene at the craps table, but you're like, wow, the bravado that he brought in. But boom, like no one knew who the hell he was. And he just like, Slade in that scene. Um, and then he and I went on to do True West on Broadway together. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Didn't you like alternate parts back yeah, and forth? Yeah, we switched the roles every three performances. So sometimes, like, we do a matinee one way and the evening performance the other way. That was really fun. It was like one of, the, one of my proudest moments of my whole life, getting to do that with Phil every night. Were you, were you friends with him or you just work buddies? Yeah, we're friends. Yeah. I mean, everyone who, who was in kind of Paul's repertory company, whether it was Bill Macy or yeah. Philip Baker Hall or Phil Hoffman, we were all friends for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, that said, sure, uh, Phil lived, prim- I don't think he ever lived out here actually, but no, he's always he New primarily York. lived in New York and yeah. I, I eventually moved out here. So it wasn't like we were spending a lot of time socially together, but I, I always held Phil in the highest esteem. Like he was an incredible, incredible actor. Have you worked with anybody younger generation who you feel like has a chance to get to that, like what we're talking about? Oh, gosh. Anybody in your tw- in their 20s or <laughs> this something? Is I, this is when I sound really old and I tell you <laughs> I don't know anyone in the younger generation. Next generation? Well, you've been in a lot no, of movies. I worked, with, uh, I worked with this guy, Thomas Mann, uh, yeah. who's in Skull Island with me, Kong Skull Island. The whole Simmons family liked that movie. Oh yeah, Kong's oh, good. oh yeah. yeah. I'm really proud of that one too. I really, I <laughs> love that movie. That movie. <laughs> I had to play a Cubs fan, unfortunately. Yeah. But, uh, I'm from the South Side, and White Sox is sort of in my DNA. But uh, yeah, so Thomas Mann is a younger guy that I I was really impressed with. Um, well, what, gosh, who else? <laughs> Name some people. I'll tell you. I don't know. I, think I should have brought a list. <laughs> what happens to the Paul Thomas Anderson Repertory Company? Because now he's spends like two, three years making these. I thought Phantom Thread was incredible. Yeah, I, I was like, I but I I still want to see him 
occasionally do like the fun, not so serious movie. And I think he kind of wants to do it. Like he didn't yeah. like rule it out, you know, but he kind of just drifts toward these mega drama projects now. Well, well, I think you just have to be honest with yourself and really do what you are, are interested in from moment to moment and can't do things because someone wants you to do work like you used to do or whatever. You know, you have to just do what you are honestly drawn to. I think he wants to do to. it, though. I think he wants yeah, to absolutely. do like something with more... Although I, I thought Phantom Thread was really funny, but it wasn't like funny the way Boogie Nights was funny, you know? It was yeah. like two different types of... Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. You know, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't counsel Paul to do anything differently. I think he, I mean, there's, he's, he's really up there. When was the last time you worked with him? Uh, Magnolia. But, um, you know, when you look at what he did with Phantom Thread, not only did he direct that movie and write that movie, and he did, had to direct Daniel Day-Lewis, who is like yeah. not a picnic to direct. He's a <laughs> right. very intense guy. <laughs> I've worked with him. You did Gangs of New York with yeah, him, right? Yeah, he's an intense yeah. guy. Like, you you got you to gotta show up at 110% every single morning with him or he'll just, you know, eat you for lunch. Yeah. Um, so Paul not only wrote and directed that movie, he was the director of photography on that movie, and he was the camera operator on that movie. I mean, that, I mean, all due respect to the other filmmakers that were noticed. Was it last year the movie came out? Yeah. All due respect to the other filmmakers who were noticed that year, but nobody did what Paul did on that movie. I, I, I finished that, and I was like, I remember, like, looking. I didn't even know he shot it. I was visiting. I was working in London at the same time as he was, and I hung out with him. We'd go see uh, dailies and stuff. And I remember him being really involved with the dailies, talking about the color timing, and, you know, they were making change. And I was like, why is he so, like, micromanaging the photography? <laughs> and then I, after I saw the movie, I was like, God damn, he he did all of that. And just to just to be the director and direct Danny Day Lewis in a part that, that was as intense as that part, that is a massive undertaking. But to but to park yourself behind the lens and be in charge of making sure the camera's going the right way. Like, it's amazing he I didn't mean, just it really was he should just virtuosic. made the costumes too. He should have just done everything. Well should have sewed, sewn all the dresses. Yeah, I'm sure he had a lot to say about the costumes. There's nothing in Paul's movies that's not there because he didn't because he didn't pick it. You know. All right, let's go through the new movies you have. You have four. Yeah. So, what do you want to talk about first? Whatever you want to talk about. No, tell me. Tell me How about each one. Four more hours. No, we're we're, uh, we're wrapping up. The Sisters Brothers. The Sisters Brothers. Yeah. Or the publicist must have overheard us and said, no, no. "I think hey, they were going to talk about the I Sisters know. Brothers." You this, I have a whole process. <laughs> uh, yeah. Sisters Brothers is a movie that I produced with my wife, Allison Dickey. We bought the rights to this book that was written by Patrick DeWitt seven years ago. Okay. Um, and we promised Patrick that we'd make the best movie we could uh, from his book. And then we got this French director, Jacques Odiard, involved. And Jacques took it on. And, um, you know, he did The Prophet and Rust and Bone. Yeah. One the Palm Door for D-Pan. Anyway, he's like one of the greatest filmmakers also out there working right now. And um, yeah, it's in theaters now and it's a pretty incredible movie. I must say, not just, I'm not speaking for myself. I'm talking for what Jacques did with the genre. What he does with the Western in the sisters brothers is really, really interesting. He stays ahead of you the whole time. You never know what's going to happen. There's all this intensely emotional stuff 
going on between me and Joaquin Phoenix. He plays my brother. We're hired killers in 1851 in San Francisco and the Pacific Northwest. And we're hired to go find this guy and kill him. And along the way, we start to have doubts about, wait, who is this guy? What did he do? Why should we kill him? And, and also, we've been killing people for a living since we were little kids. And we're starting to have this, like, identity crisis, you know? So the movie is, um, I don't know, it's a real, it's a really deeply satisfying movie. You know, I was saying earlier about how, you know, a lot of these movies are are just there to entertain you now. Yeah. I've watched I watched a movie on the plane on the way back from Europe recently, a big superhero movie, and it was good. It made the it made the flight pass by and and I was engaged in it. But as soon as that movie was over, I couldn't right now I couldn't tell you a single thing <laughs> of what it was about or what happened. Yeah. I could tell you maybe who a couple of the actors were in it. I couldn't tell you a single thing about the plot and it had no resonance in my life afterwards. The Sisters Brothers, what people are saying to me when they watch The Sisters Brothers is like, wow, like, first of all, holy shit, like, that was a really original take on the Western. I didn't even know that was going on at that time and blah, blah, blah. And I I liked the movie when it was finished, but I can't stop thinking about it. That it really? keeps expanding in my consciousness and it keeps, like, echoing inside me emotionally about my own relationships and the place of men in the world and what is masculinity and like all these stuff. Like it's really resonating with people. So I really, I know I, every time I go out to sell a movie, I try to urge people to say it, to see it. And I say, please go see it. But I really do hope people go see the sisters brothers because it's a pretty special movie of all the stuff I've done. It's pretty damn special. That was a great sell job. Thank you. Now, now I'm like, well, I, I'm like out of my mind ready it. to see it. No, that was yeah. awesome. Yeah. I mean, I got a lot of sports to watch. I might, I might still, I'm going to make some time. Okay. This is yeah. baseball playoffs, NFL, NBA. Know, so I'm still going to make win? time for who's this. Who's going to win? I've known well, the Cubs the are out. I know. I don't the care. Brewers the Brewers are somehow in the final four. I was glad the Cubs were out. Brewers are in the final four. joy, like this kind of sadistic pleasure when the Cubs lose, especially when they pan the audience and you see all the North Siders with their sad little faces. Like it makes South Siders in Chicago so happy. Like, although when the Cubs won, unlike many Sox fans, I was actually like, it's a good day for the city. It's a good day for the city, you know. But I have lots of people on the South that were like, die, die. Like they were just, they were not happy. Well, you must have loved it when the White Sox won and all the Cubs fans were super resentful. It was literally like the second coming on the South side. (laughs) People had their televisions out on the front yards and the lawn watching the, watching it as it unfolded. Like people, it was mayhem. I was also there in Chicago when when Jordan was, oh yeah, you know, winning all those championships with the Bulls. But I'm known as the Jinx in Chicago. Why among my friends? Because the one time, because I'm like the Johnny Come Lately, you know, like. You know, like in Silver Linings Playbook, when I, all the paranoid thinking about luck and superstition and all that, I'm the guy that messes it up. I'm the guy that says the wrong thing or whatever. Oh, Jesus. Like when the when the Bears won the Super Bowl in 80, was it 86? Yeah. The one game they lost was the game that I went over to my brother-in-law's house. Oh, the Miami house. game. Yeah, yeah, Miami Dolphins. I went over to his house to watch, and they lost. And it was the one time I went over to his house to watch it, and now— I'm still the jinx from that from that one game. You caught Kevin. And I kind of believe it. I you, do. You I, caught his perfect game though. That wasn't a jinx. Yeah, it's a perfect game. Yeah, <laughs> I know where the pitches really landed, Bill. 
And it wasn't a perfect game. You saw the secret sauce. Uh, we have to go. You have to go continue to promote oh, this, this movie and your other ones. should have done great. this a long time ago. This was fun. You're always invited. Anytime you, do you want a, to come back. You know, a 30-year anniversary of Boogie Nights. You're going to be participate? Yeah, let me know. That would be amazing. To- I want to get you and Paul Thomas Anderson on together. Oh, man. That would be the dream podcast. Would you do that? Better set aside a few hours for that one. Would you do that one? We could get food. So many stories between the two of us. Yeah, we'll do it in like a restaurant. We'll eat and we'll just put microphones We could spend three hours just talking about Burt Reynolds. Like, and the (laughs) stories that happened on Boogie Nights and like, you know, just the the craziness that that went into that performance. You know, that Boogie Nights house was available for sale last year i saw it and it looked the same and he was thinking about paul was thinking about buying it you know it's like what are you gonna do in west West covina Covina. yeah Yeah, what are you gonna do but you know about the people that own that house no they were like devout christians oh no devout christians and they had not changed that house since like 1974 like we barely did any set dressing when they went in there it was like Almost the same as it was in the 70s. I think it's almost the same now. And then one day, and we and, and they didn't know what the movie was about. The people yeah. that owned it, they didn't, and of course, would never have approved of any kind of porn thing in their house. <laughs> and so there was a day when we, we had summer and rain, those big-chested girls. Remember, like, uh, in oh, the yeah. 80s where Ricky... Uh, Ricky Jay oh, is and filming and it was just it's just video we just keep shooting and whatever and these girls playing with each other in the hot tub and whatever <laughs> that day the Christian people that own the house decided we'll go visit the movie set oh no and I remember looking out and seeing like this producer John Lyons like booking down the driveway trying to stop them he's like well we're actually uh, uh, you you know uh, can I take you out to lunch you know <laughs> like desperately trying to keep them from coming in the house but oh, yeah, I wonder what they thought of it when it was done well, good luck with all. Good luck with your four movies. And I bet they got more the money for Brothers. that house though when they sold it, based on it being it was, Boogie Nights. I gotta say, it was on sale for a while, and Boogie Nights was used as the selling point of the house, and it still was on sale for nine months because we actually had a legitimate conversation about whether the Ringer should buy it and shoot all of our videos from there. But it's too far away. Commute, dude. It's like fifty minutes. Yeah. yeah, if it was like twenty minutes, we could have done a lot it. of time on the ten. Yeah, it would have been rough in the sixty. John C. Riley, good luck with everything. Thanks Thank for coming on, finally. 